If you'd like to contact the show, send us an email at liveonfourlegspodcast at gmail.com or get involved in the conversation on social media. Join the Pearl Jam Podcast community group on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Live on Four Legs Pod. You just witnessed one of the highlights of our lives. They were playing with Steve Bravo. And away we go. You're listening to Live on Four Legs, the live Pearl Jam podcast experience featuring Mr. Stone Gossett. Fucking camera in the truck. everybody now welcome to live on four legs a definitive live pearl jam podcast and today's episode is going back to 1994 that in between verses and vitalogy era that tour is just so memorable for so many different reasons and unfortunately we have covered a minimal amount of 1994 shows not on purpose We've covered a lot of good stuff, and I think the one that we're going to cover today is going to be one of the best. It's got a great story to it. It's got a song that is maybe one of the most highly sought-after OTOTOs in Pearl Jam history. Maybe this one kind of defines what an OTOTO is. We can get into that conversation a little bit. But we are doing Murfreesboro, Tennessee from March 26, 1994. A lot of stuff goes on around this time period. And we're going to get into that. We're going to get into the song and the rest of the set. 18 songs. That's it. But we'll have a lot to talk about. And off the top, I'm actually going to go back to something that I didn't mention from last week. So we'll start with that. Randy Sobel over here. John Farrar over there. Hello, hello. Hey, so are you ready for this extra Pittsburgh bonus thing that I have that I totally forgot? Yeah. Yeah. So I believe I got to thank Steve Bennett for this one because I know he told me the story at some point but I couldn't remember what show it was for until he reminded me last week so after the show you have to remember that this isn't in Pittsburgh Pittsburgh's about 35 minutes away this is in Burgettstown Pennsylvania it's a suburb but you gotta think around that around that time you know nothing's open afterwards and like this hungry crowd that just had a show of a lifetime is probably pretty hungry they're gonna want to go and find a place to eat especially if people are staying the night and then flying out the next day then yeah they're gonna want to find a place so i don't remember the place where everybody flocked to but it was the one i guess that was the closest thing available that was open like a diner or something like that i know that there's a name for it and the name has been recited but i i can't remember what that name was 
apparently it was so overwhelming with fans at this diner that there were like nearly hundreds. I, I can't speak to how many, but you have to think like, okay, the fans just kind of keep piling up. If one group of fans sees another group of fans, then it's just going to keep going on, especially if there's nothing else really in town. So the demand was so high. And I guess the Pearl Jam fans were so intense and kind of crazy and kind of juiced up after the show that the wait staff just said, screw it. We're done. We're out of here. I don't know if that came before or after people started going into the back and cooking their own food. Hmm. There were people that legitimately went back there because I don't know how many cooks they had, but at what, 11, 12 o'clock at night, you're not going to have like your whole entire staff. It's probably one person because you're not expecting this. I don't know how they couldn't expect it though. You had people kind of getting restless and impatient and going back into the kitchen and just saying, all right, I'm making an omelet. And then what ended up happening was they completely took over the kitchen. All of the staff left and Pearl Jam fans were making orders for Pearl Jam fans. How incredible is that? Yeah, of all the staff left like that, that seems like something like there's a legend aspect to this. Like they wouldn't have just left them there. Maybe, I don't know, but yeah, I wonder like if they were like, you know, leaving money in the cash register and stuff, hopefully, you know, to pay for things. Who knows? Just kind of a cool little legend that I just wanted to share with you guys. It's part of the story and it kind of makes that whole lore of the show kind of make it feel even more special than it was. So I just wanted to share that. I thought that was cool. Yeah, it was really special for the people who were there. Like, yeah, it's like, you know, you're all amped up after the show. Like, yeah, we're doing this. You know, maybe somebody knew somebody or something like, yeah, you're kind of doing it yourself. That's cool. And anybody that's listening in and they're like, well, I was there and I know a little bit more of the detail or I have a specific story. Just write to us, you know, send us a DM in our inbox on any of the social medias or email us on Gmail live on four podcast and gmail.com because I was kind of taking it based off of what I remember out of a story. But I, I, I'm guessing that that's the gist right there. But if anybody wants to correct me on anything, please feel free. We obviously weren't there. So, all right, let's get into actual Murfreesboro now. So the reason why we're covering this show today is because it has pretty much one of the most legendary covers that they've ever done, especially for the mid-90s. When you think of some of the covers that happened there, and we're going to talk about it a little bit with the question of the week this week, but like this one, it not only feels like it's kind of out of left field, but it comes at a time where it seemed like Pearl Jam wasn't really associating with much other bands in the music industry and anything like that. However, they got this opportunity where in 1993, they were touring with Neil Young in Canada, in Europe, a couple other places, and Neil was touring with Booker T and the MGs. Booker T and the MGs were the backing band for Otis Redding, like legendary backing band. Among many others, yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. And every night that Neil did a set, he would play Dock of the Bay with them, and that became kind of a thing. We flash forward about a year, and Steve Cropper apparently lives in the Nashville area, as Ed would say a little bit later, and one thing leads to another. He invites him out, 
and he is now a part of this show playing like this legendary guitar player playing with Pearl Jam and kind of bringing this like veteran aspect to what they were doing. And if you wanted to talk to somebody and listen to somebody that knows a thing or two about all this, then that's probably one of the best people to throw up on stage with you. There's so many instances here, we'll talk about it a little later, where they just seemed absolutely floored by what's happening. It's something that only probably Pearl Jam can pull off out of all the bands in the early mid-90s there. I can't picture like Soundgarden doing this or something like that. You know, this seems like something that became like part of what they would do is kind of paying homage to some of these people who had been around. And we've talked about how, you know, like Ed always wanted to be the elder statesman, even when he was 27 years old. I think this, this hints at that a lot. And you mentioned the Neil thing. I'm sure that was a big part of it. I uh, looked it up. It looked like even Steve Cropper was the house band for Bob Dylan at the Dylan 30th anniversary concert. So they might've even gotten to know him there, gotten to meet him there. But yeah, this is just so random in 1994 but it kind of took on a life of its own yeah and kind of going back a little bit to just the idea of this song this song obviously not anywhere near pearl jam's wheelhouse yeah and it's kind of funny because outside of all of their pretty standard covers that they were doing at the time rocking in the free world bob o'reilly like those are things that you can kind of connect pearl jam to they had a lot of these type of songs which were either one-offs or only played a couple of times that felt like, you know, they were outside of the Pearl Jam scope, so to speak. Things like Everyday People and those kind of songs. Yeah, there were a lot of, there were some of those, like, one-off things that the OTOTO, the like, huh. Some of them stuck around and, and some of them didn't, and this one just never came back. And it's funny, too, because I think Steve Cropper, like, co-wrote this song with Otis Redding so that's like a nice tribute to him as well giving him a little bit of credit there but it feels like on paper like it wouldn't work like you look at the set list and you're like that's gonna be really weird and random but it actually works I think they pull it off and do a really good job with it we'll talk about it later yeah I don't think that without Steve Cropper this happens oh of of course of course so yeah yeah, no never and you can see that it's, it's never happened again yeah right 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 so as this kind of became sort of part of Pearl Jam lore, and at the time, you know, everybody's trying to get their hands on any bootleg that they can, and people are coming up with these bootleg packages, as we talked about on the Hallucinogenic Recipe podcast, that they just did a whole episode on the Hallucinogenic Recipe box set. And one of the things that they've been itching to talk about is the No Fucking Messiah release, too. And this was on that. I'm going to toss it to Brian and Patrick to kind of give sort of a perspective on what the collecting aspect was for it, kind of what the buzz, you know, this is just a middle Tennessee show. It's not one that's in like New York. It's not Seattle. Like it wasn't a show that people really recognized. And yet this song was so highly coveted for so long. So let's hear what they have to say about that. Brian Horowitz, how are you doing? This is Patrick uh, with Hallucinogenic I'm, Recipe. How are you? I'm doing good, my friend. How are you doing? I'm doing great on this lovely March 26th on what actually happens to be the true anniversary of this show, I believe. The track that we're going to be talking about, which is sitting on the dock of the bay. 
which appeared on No Fucking Messiah, which is fun to say. We we thought yes. about that when we actually talked about it. It's fun to say that. It also appeared on new songs in terms of compilations. But before we get into too much of the detail on this, just talking about how this actually came to be, this track, the fact that it actually even made it out into the ether as one of these one-time, one-time-only performances is kind of amazing for a couple of reasons. One, you go back to the Atlanta broadcast, and after the show, they did a little post-show DJ session where they spun some records. I think it was mostly Ed and Jeff. And the penultimate song that they ended up playing was their cover of Sitting on the Dock of the Bay. I actually had tuned out at that point when we go back to April of 1994. Do you recall hearing the post-show DJ session when you were listening, or was this an after-the-fact thing for you, too? It was an after-the-fact thing. I think the Atlanta broadcast, so I still have my original tapes of that show that I recorded off of the, the local radio station, and my radio station was editing the broadcast. I didn't realize how much of like the mid-song banter was happening until I actually got like my hands on an actual recording of it that, that wasn't edited. So, no, we, we only had the, the broadcast itself, and unless I just missed it and didn't realize there was going to be a post-show, I, I stopped taping and I was done, so I didn't hear the post-show stuff until much later. Well, the station that I was listening to, which would have been K-Rock in New York, if it wasn't K-Rock, it would have been like 1027 at the time. And they had basically dropped out once the show was over. And I didn't even think to be like, oh, let me go to a different station to see if there's any more. Um, At that point, I was like, okay, that was awesome. And moving on to the next thing. So the first time that I knew that this actually happened was picking up a copy of no fucking messiah that was like the impetus for me being like holy shit like there was no moment before that where it was like oh hey did you hear this did you hear that we're talking about spring 94 things came out at that point if you got set lists you got them if you were in a usenet group or from the old real print fanzines which would take months to get out at that point like something like footsteps so the first time that i saw it again was with no fucking messiah and i didn't know what i was gonna think when i pressed play on that cd and got to that track the song itself for me was like it's a big one i'm a huge otis redding fan that influence came from a a couple of my older brothers who were into the Grateful Dead, and then obviously all of the offshoots of bands and whatnot. And the first time that I really was exposed to Otis Redding was late in high school, early college, Monterey Pop Festival. Right around that time, the box set for Monterey Pop came out and Otis had a set on that. I didn't do Dock of the Bay there, but then that kind of got the ball rolling for me and putting together the math. I'd heard Dock of the Bay on the radio I can't even imagine how many times from the time that I was able to, you know, put together sound. It was just one of those songs that always just stuck with me as like a near perfect song. And then to hear that Pearl Jam was covering it was like, oh, my gosh, what is this going to be? And then to do it with the co-writer, Steve Cropper, was even that much more interesting. One of the things that sticks with me for this one is how well vetter delivered the vocal on it this was not like a one-off where it was not thought through i mean he was thinking about doing this for a period of time because he delivers the vocal on this 
about as good as you could possibly imagine. He sounds fantastic. I can't tell you how many mixtapes and playlists and burn CDs and things that I've put that on and having people over for a barbecue or a party or hanging out or whatever. Inevitably, there's someone who like hadn't heard it before was like, wait a minute, like that's Pearl Jam. That sounds awesome. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it sounds spot on. And I think my experience with it was a little bit different than yours. I remember the same thing. The first time I actually heard it was No Fucking Messiah. And yeah, there's liner notes in there. And I think we covered this when we did that episode that it says, you know, special appearance by Steve Cropper. But, you know, again, it's a little bit hazy. You're probably talking 95 or so when I got that. But I remember, you know, at the beginning, he goes, you know, it's an honor to be able to play one of his songs with him here tonight. And here's a song called Dock of the Bay. You know, it's funny, a couple of things. It, you listen to the crowd there, and I'm not sure everyone heard what he said until he starts singing the first line, and then they really cheer and go, holy crap, right. he's, they're playing the song. And I remember thinking, wait a minute, this is Notice Redding song. I'm like 99% sure he's dead. What does he mean by that? And so I finally put two and two together and then realized who Steve Cropper was when I you know, did a little bit of research. But I probably won't want to admit how long it took me to figure out <laughs> who he was. I mean, it might have been Five Horizons when I finally put everything together a couple years later. It's reasonable also, you know, you think about the way that information, music information travels at that point. And all you had to go on was one of his songs with him here tonight. <laughs> it's, right. not like, it's not like it was cut to the point of him going through a big introduction right. of, of Steve at all. But just an amazing ethereal moment where it just like was so precise and so pristine. And the source aspect of it, they broadcast that on the 4394 post show, the question becomes about like, what was the source tape? Now, I always just assumed it was Brett Eliason's master front of house board because it isn't stereo. So when you hear it, it's not cut down into left, right at all. It's crystal clear for the most part. Yeah. It is a great, great recording. But you had mentioned something when we talked about No Fucking Messiah about it sounding like it was an audience tape. And then I've gone back and I've listened to it. And there's a couple of points where you can hear very faintly people talking. And yeah. then I got to thinking there's only two explanations for any of that. One, it could have been one of those tapes where Ed had his recording set up on stage. He would sort of hint that that's something that he did back in that time frame that he brought his own personal recorder to set out in front of the monitors. I'm not entirely sure how much I buy on that as being something that he did that often, but it's plausible. There's other tapes that have come out, things like Indio that sort of beg the question of what was the source for that material. Right. Where did um, this come but, from? Right. Yeah. But I, I still, I mean, it seems to me that it would be likely something that was an unmixed sort of raw tape that was given to them that he felt really good about in order to play either way the quality of it was really really fantastic and i think that's one of the things that just elevated that for me as like a go-to piece of that particular release and the history of that song the importance of that song in music and rock history and just incredible to think about how they ripped that off and when I say rip it off, I don't mean like stole it. I mean, like with the effect of how they played it, the energy of how they played it was right. so good. Yeah, they some, pulled it in, off perfectly. In so many ways, it's sad to think that it is that one and done because you go back to that time frame. It was a big one for collectors, but I think it's kind of lost its sort of notoriety in the sense of the things that they've done over the years. But that's such a huge song and such an amazing thing to do with Steve. And it kind of sits 
a little bit in the background of the many, many things that they've done through their 30 plus year career at this point. Yeah, it's a good point. Just kind of doing the math on the amount of days, you actually have a good point there, which is if it was March 26th and they played it post the Atlanta show, April 3rd, that wouldn't have given Ed a lot of time to somehow track down an audience recording or vice versa, have an audience recording somehow track him down, get on his radar and then be able to play it. So odds are it was something a little closer to home that he got his hands on. I just always thought it sounded like a really well recorded audience recording, but when you compare it to like St. Petersburg or even like Atlanta night one and some of those March, April recordings, it's crisper than those, whoever was kind of doing those recordings. So you have a good point there. It might be a little side soundboard feed or, or, or Eddie having something kind of on the side of the stage to record it. Cause it's definitely a little crisper than some of the other bootlegs from that era. Question to ask if I ever am able to sit down with Brett Eliason, I would probe him on that and he might not remember it because it's so long ago at this point. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned earlier, you know, there's a couple of other appearances that this song ends up yeah. in bootleg catalog um, outside of the aforementioned monster disc of No Fucking Messiah. What were a couple of those ones that stood out to you where this ended up on those compilations? Yeah, absolutely. I, I did some research here because I had it on a couple for sure. You know, there's some old GeoCities and Angel Fire sites that are still out there and archived. And so I, I kind of took a snapshot of the ones I could find. And so the ones I could find that appeared on, and this is probably not an exhaustive list. It was on alternate versions. It was on the Bridges set disc two. There is a Bridge School acoustic concert disc that only contains Bridge School night one. And this is one of the bonus tracks on it. So that's interesting. It's on the Burning Compilation Disc 2, Chapters Disc 1, and then a bunch of one-disc sets. So it's on Coverin', Covers 1995, Immortality, New Songs, which I think you mentioned, No Fucking Messiah, Rare Tracks 3, and Unplugged and Undrugged is the last one I could find. Those are all in alphabetical order on the site that I found. I guarantee there were more, but that seemed like a pretty good, almost exhaustive list. It is a must-listen and something that should be in rotation consistently. 100%. All right. That's a wrap. All right. To Brian and Patrick, thanks for coming on again. It's been a while, yeah. and we really hope that you guys put another episode out again soon. Maybe this is the invigoration to get the No Fucking Messiah episode out. Who knows? Who knows? But thank you guys again. Just endless amounts of info there. Now, I'm going to go to the question of the week right here. The lore of an OTOTO is just something that you can't ever predict it. You can't ever expect it. And you can't even predict what it will be because it's just so random in so many different parts. Like it could be something from a band that's totally expected, like a Rolling Stones or something like that. Or it could be like this. It could be Dock of the Bay. You would never expect them to do an Otis Redding cover. And some of the other bands that people had mentioned here completely fit the same thing. People are going to say Maggot Brain. And that one is absolutely in that category. I never, ever would have expected that. And they never played it since. That was back in Milwaukee in 95. So I asked everybody this week what their favorite one-off or OTOTO Pearl Jam performance was. And I was sort of thinking like it had to be a cover. So it couldn't be like falling down or something like that. Also, if the song was played like two or three times, I was accepting that. I didn't really care about that aspect, but something that was out of their wheelhouse. That's what I was looking for there. Let's read some answers right here from Daryl Dawson. 
he said Dock of the Bay and he said Everyday People there. I think Everyday People is a great example because it just happened at a really spotlighted show and a really spotlighted moment with Brennan O'Brien on keys. And it kind of felt a little bit out of nowhere and even didn't feel like they fully had it down. It felt like they were just kind of riffing on it and kind of jamming with it. But it's still on that stage, a pretty legendary moment. Oh, definitely. Yeah. It's just iconic. Like it makes that show kind of one of those things that makes you turn your head and be like, wait, what? It's just very similar to Dock of the Bay. Yeah. Same sort of thing. I've got Scott Logsdon here on the podcast community group, kind of peeling off of everyday people. He said, Buddy Holly every day from Lubbock, Texas in 2000. Oh, uh, that's one that like I even forget sometimes. Like if you threw that out there, like, yeah, Pearl Jam covered that Buddy Holly song. I'd be like, what? No, what are you talking about? Like, that's one that I never even think of. But that, that's definitely a good call. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, this is a really good call here. I was at this show when they did this and I was just like, mostly confused as to why but evan on twitter said and suggested taking it to the streets by the doobie brothers that they did at msg in 2016 i would never have expected them to do doobie brothers song and i still don't know why they did it yeah that's another one that i either block out or forget about like right yeah just completely random how about Ship Song? Chris Hollenbeck pulled out Ship Song from Red Rocks 95. I mean, you people always talk about falling down. And, you know, the, the Ship Song was kind of an aborted take. It wasn't the full thing. But, you know, Ed said, oh, you know, it's done a good backstage. So that's another random one that gets kind of overlooked because of what else happened that night. Yeah, yeah, sure. Of course. I'm going to mention this one because I'm actually unfamiliar with this. And this makes all a lot of sense. It happened in Christchurch, New Zealand in 2009. They played with Liam and Neil to do Better Be Home Soon, which I'm guessing is a split ends or a crowded house song. Hmm. I don't know much about it, but like yeah, that's no. you go down to those shows and things that have happened there and you haven't really studied it at all. So I would assume that's tied to the Finns. Steve Bennett, who always pops up on these things, I've been to a bunch of shows. He had every day as well from Lubbock, but one that he pulled out I really like because I have this on a an Ed Solo bootleg and it's an incredible version. I like this one too. The James Taylor song Millworker from Grand Rapids 2004. Was that a full band song or was that Eddie Solo? I can't remember. I think it was part of the solo acoustics part of the show. Okay. I'll have to go back and listen to that one. Yeah. That's good. You're right. It's, it's real like, I don't want to say forgettable because it's not forgettable, but like just totally out of left field in their catalog. Yeah. How about a lot of people said, I'm just going to go off of what Matt Behan said. He mentions the kinks, better things, which only got played twice. And then he mentioned, which a lot of other people mentioned taillights fade with Buffalo Tom lead singer, Bill Janowitz. Yep. Really, really good. And from a little more recent from 2018. So hasn't gotten the legendary status, but Again, very, very good, and yeah, cool to give Buffalo Tom some credit there. They're a great underrated band. I've got one for myself that nobody mentioned. When they did the Germs Lion Share mm. in uh, in Boston, completely off, out of left field, super weird. Like, never would have thought Pearl Jam would do a Germs song, but they did one time. You can take anything from that 2004 vote yep. for change run from bleed for me to the American in me. He did trouble. 
He did Cat Stevens a couple of yeah. times there, I believe. Yeah. Like a lot of those covers. And, and hell, if you even want to mention Neil's appearance and when they did Cortez the Killer and, and some of those other songs. Yep, a couple like, people mentioned that one. There's a lot of gems that are just kind of buried in that year. And I think X, maybe, the New World, yeah. Right, that maybe get forgotten about just because they don't have any bootlegs of that year. So I wonder, I have to go to a Curtis one and then I'll kind of say one that I have boys are back in town, Dublin, 2006, doing a little thin Lizzie in Ireland. Better than you two. I prefer that, but better to do thin Lizzie than you two. Yeah. I'd absolutely agree with that. Yeah. I think that when we did, it wasn't long ago. I think it was in 2023 when we did the Eagles, of death metal song. The name is escaping me right now, but I remember saying, like, nobody's ever going to remember this. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Where's well, it? Boys, boys Gone uh, Bad? Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. People also mentioned Ain't Talking About Love, but a lot of people said, I like the first two. I don't like the third. That's, uh, that's, that's, a, that's a trigger around here. People are just buttering me up. I think that's all it is. So thanks, everybody. Those were really good responses. Once again, you guys are killing it. And I hope everybody that has been sharing their answers is tuning in to hear us talk about it. Because Just made the weirdest Pearl Jam cover album of all time. Oh, we'll have to do that now. We'll have to actually put one together. Yeah, that sounds fun. All right. TBD on that. Okay, let's dive in to Murfreesboro. This has been opened with a couple of times in 1994. Probably most famously is St. Pete. That was a couple of days later. But the lights are all dark when they come out. And that little intro to Rearview Mirror hits. The crowd, once they hear Eddie's voice in the darkness, it just erupts. And then when the lights go on right before the first chorus, everybody goes wild. Rearview Mirror is open in your show. times that they had opened with it and uh, like I kind of mentioned most of them been in 1994 there were a couple one-offs in like 07 and I think one happened in I want to say in a festival in 2014 probably worked or festival or something like that back then it's an explosive way to kick things off now it would be an explosive way to kick things off and the whole thing I was thinking about during this performance is when the SNL performance comes out, when they do that, do you need performances like this that are just as intense 
that are just as raw and emotive and it's gonna be on a smaller scale than Saturday Night Live but still versions like this where they really start to feel it and they're really on a high with it will lead to versions that become all-time versions like the SNL one. Um, well, before I get into this, we have to mention the local flavor on the bootleg. There's a couple of people, I have to assume they're Tennesseans. They sound you, like it. You hear a few times. There's one as Ruby Mirror is starting, just, oh, fucking yeah. Like, I love that. There's there's a few times in the show I'm going to mention. It's really, really funny. Like you mentioned, the crowd is eating it up right from the beginning. Pearl Jam has come to their small town, to their, their college in 1994, biggest band in the world. If you're 18 to 25 years old, anywhere in that area, you were there. This is probably the event of the spring. I thought this version had a ton of confidence and swagger. Like, they've come out on stage and been like, we're going to destroy this place. And they do. Especially you can see Ed walking around during the bridge, just kind of playing guitar, just like walking around like, oh yeah, we own this place tonight. Like, he knows he's got the crowd behind him. They've already gotten the big reaction twice. Yeah, it's just a full-on breakneck 1994 version. I think at one point, one of the techs, like, throws him an Ebo for the part. Just full-on, catches it mid-stride, throws it on there, tosses it down when it's done. This is a great way to start the show. I love love when they do this in 1994. What do you think about what I just said before? Like, you need these versions to really rev you up to big ones like Um. SNL. Yeah, I mean, I think it probably, with a song like this, like, it was going to get there. But yeah, it probably just gave them just more and more confidence to play it on the bigger stage like that when you're on live television, you know, and just have, like I said, the swagger and the confidence to go out and like, yeah, we're going to go destroy this tonight. Lots of firepower towards the end. Ed had the big scream, which led to Mike getting a head start on the ending part, which sounded fantastic. And yeah, what a way to get started. Usually we're talking about this and we're like, okay, no, let's pause for station identification, but no, we got a whole thing to do here. So we're getting out of that and we're kind of going, this is interesting, we're going into whipping, and then we're going to go into go and even flow. We all know that the Vitalogy songs were used in a very heavy capacity in this year, in this little tour that they did in March and April. And it's interesting to see a song like Whipping, which first of all is in its 22nd performance. So that in itself is very impressive. But as the second song in, a crowd that probably hasn't toured with the band a whole lot, probably doesn't have the bootlegs from 1993 passed along to them so they can hear whipping in its full form. It's probably pretty unfamiliar to them, but it doesn't matter because they're going to hit you with a really strong, intense version of this. You know, I can see people in the crowd saying, like, what the hell was that? But that was awesome. Where can I find that again? Absolutely. And it's such a quick, fast song that, like, like I said, it doesn't matter. Everyone, even though they don't know it, everyone's going to be, no pun intended, whipped into a frenzy. But it feels like we haven't mentioned Abrazis on this show in forever. But I was waiting until go. I was waiting until yeah, go. Yeah, yeah. But no, on the last verse, Dave just pulls it out into another level and sends the song into the stratosphere. It's a good performance by him. Ed's greeting the Murfreesboro crowd real quick in between, and he's saying, we're here to play some music. You're here to listen. I think we got a good thing going. And right away, that da na 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 boom. Yeah, Dave just sounds like he's murdering that 
intro into the song and it just elevates from there and it just gets faster it just gets harder and i think that david is most bombastic for sure but ed is falling up there and everything that's coming out of his voice is just shattering all the expectations that his vocals can manage and then mike both of his solos absolutely at the top of his game shredding on both accounts even to the final solo at the end of the song where he's just entranced in it so much that he just kind of falls to the ground you can see what it's doing to him you can see that he knows that i fucking nailed this and the song and performance was just right on top of its game for 1994 i don't think you can get much better in go for this era or forever Yeah, absolutely relentless. And yeah, Mike goes behind the head for the first one. And then yeah, at the end, in the video of this, there's not nearly enough Mike in the video. They're, it's very focused on Ed. Part of that is due to whoever was filming doesn't have a really good line of sight on Mike. Like he looks like he's blocked by some rafters or posts or something. So we don't get a lot of him, but you do see him kind of at the end of the song just collapse onto the monitor after the solo and yeah just completely spent like he's given everything in the song it's it's very very intense now in 18 songs in the set which is pretty of course light and i think with two covers you're really basing it off of 16 so the 10 songs are really underrepresented in the show in comparison to verses of course like you would think in this era it would kind of be not split like maybe like two or three more versus songs but 10 feels like really underrepresented at this show you can tell that this is part of what the crowd wants like the minute that they crack in the even flow this crowd absolutely loses it this crowd is very very good this is a very very good crowd the whole entire night it seemed like they loved the first three songs but they needed an even flow to really start getting that connection in with the band and i'll make a point in just a second with the next song that kind of is sort of a a segue out of that but great moments there with with stone and jeff and mike i know you're going to want to mention this all playing towards the drum riser but you're probably going to want to mention stone's kind of goofy little antics happening here that's what I was going to lead with. I love Stone on this. He's just all attack. Like this, this version of Even Flow is all attack. Like sometimes they will play it off on the back foot a little bit and kind of hit the groove a little more. But this one just felt on the front foot, just attack from the very beginning. And that has to do with Stone, like doing all the classic Stone stuff. But yeah, I mean, this crowd, you got to think like, yeah, this is a college town, you know, Middle Tennessee State University. 
bunch of 18 to 21 year olds all grew up you know a few years back watching that even flow video waiting for this moment so yeah this was going to be one of the ones that they were waiting for and yet it doesn't disappoint i mean they mentioned the 10 songs it doesn't feel like there's very many in this set there's five but they kind of come in clusters there's going to be like a cluster right here and then a, a cluster at the end of the main set but oh this one's still got some bite to it even in 1994. you can tell after Eva flows over just the I mean the crowd and the energy that's happening in that building is pretty palpable and there were some shows around this time you know weeks before weeks after and stuff like that there are ones where you can tell that the band is in kind of a foul mood because of things that are happening people were trying to get and break in backstage and I think there was a bomb threat in like Detroit or something like that like there was shit going down and some intangible we, kind of not related to the music stuff because a lot of that was going on yeah right and then of course Ticketmaster stuff and things like that that's on their mind and all the above but it legitimately feels like they're in a really really good mood at this show and it feels like the crowd are putting them in an even better mood that they're already in I think the knowledge of them knowing that Steve Cropper is going to join them later has them really really excited and it just feels loose in that aspect I don't want to say it's rare for 1994, but hearing the band and seeing the band feel positive and have a lot of energy during this era, it's good to see. And I think it's interesting that it kind of transfers really well into Dissonant because Dissonant is sort of the song where it's like, okay, we had four really up songs like Dissonant. All right, we can kind of just play this a little bit easy, but I don't think they let off the gas that much in Dissonant. I thought that Dissonant was a really nice performance and kind of played off that energy and kind of worked off that momentum that we like. Yeah, I don't think they know how to let off the gas in 1994. Dissident, I think Ed throws up the middle fingers at some point, so he's definitely like feeling something uh, going on with it. Got a little bit of energy behind it, some anger, so that was cool to see, but it doesn't hit the same like speed that the first ones did, but crowd was still into it. It was It was a radio song, so yeah, people are into it. It is a good crowd, like you said, very, very good. A bunch of youth energy. Yeah, and that's going to transfer over into Deep as well. Like, you have this sandwiched in between two 10 songs, and the 10 song coming back here, I think, is just going to cause another big reaction. And Deep, I think, was a pretty good highlight in this. There's a lot going on. With Monster Screams, with Dave and Mike feeling like they're in syncopato here, with the ferocity that gave this, like, a strong bite, that, like versions of deep that kind of happen after 1993 1994 that dave's still around and they're continuing the descent into madness at the end and ed starts to really kind of feel manic and there's a point in this where he's taking the mic off the mic stand and kind of falling to the ground which is interesting to watch and spinning in circles and doing all this stuff this is something that at this time they were really excelling in and just felt like a madhouse when you're watching it. Same as kind of that I talked about with Rearview Mirror. It felt like it had a lot of kind of swagger and confidence and like they've been doing this song like this for, for years now. And like you mentioned, it's really a, a song that Dave thrives on. And yeah, you're seeing all of like the little mic tricks where he's kind of doing the and yeah, anytime he's falling to the floor, spinning around, it felt like they were just on top on this version. Like we're gonna take this somewhere dark and, and somewhere, again, no pun intended, somewhere deep. 
and going to take this crowd with them because they, they know, again, getting that kind of energy off the crowd is going to lead to performances like this. Ten. We said there wasn't going to be a lot more ten. There's not going to be much more afterwards. But Jeremy coming in, you could hear that bass like faintly come in after the deep transition, and I thought that that sounded really good. It wasn't in your face like most versions of Jeremy are, where you just hear the bass and it's up in front. And like this one, kind of sort of had to develop, and I thought that that was a cool aspect. And you have to talk a little bit about I think this year where Jeremy had a ton of different iterations where sometimes that they would do a part in the chorus, sometimes they wouldn't sing the first chorus, sometimes they wouldn't do the first chorus. This is a version where they didn't do the first chorus. And I think that out of all of their little iterations, I think I like this one the most because when they do get to that second chorus and they do get into that, it makes it feel more powerful. It builds the anticipation up a lot more. Yeah, you know, you're delaying the big payoff and kind of building it up and making everybody wait so that when that moment hits, it hits even harder. And you can hear that, I don't know if it's that same person in the crowd or whatever, when Jeremy starts to say, everybody sing. But yeah, again, a really big version, a really, really good place to put it here to get the 10 songs, kind of build that wave and let it crash and hit the crowd really hard. I I really like watching Stone and Jeff jamming on this too. It felt like they were just having a lot of fun and really like, again, building off that groove and Jeff just letting that bass ring out. It's very, very cool. I mean, again, you're punishing this crowd with song after song at this point. So afterwards, we're going to get the first like legitimate Ed speech here. And I can't tell... But the way that Ed is reacting to this, it kind of sounds like he's noticing that people are chanting for Ed. Oh, yeah. Like, Eddie, 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 Eddie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You could hear I, it I couldn't bit. hear it, but oh, okay. it's yeah. he puts it to rest right away. He says, yep. enough with that crap. The band is five guys. I ain't shit without them. They let me be in their band. Before we continue, let's say hi to everybody from side to side, through the middle. Somebody mentions here that I I don't know if I definitely don't know the info for it, but maybe you do. Apparently, there are people in front that had to survive a base attack from earlier. 
and I don't really know what that's in reference to. However, King's X opened up for them, and I was told that Jeff would make appearances with King's X, so I wonder if that had something to do with that. Yeah, I assumed it was a King's X thing, but we don't really know for sure. Animal Glorified G and Daughter are going to be the next tandem here. The Animal Furious right from the start. Ed's vocals are impressive, earth-shattering yet again. Jeff is really energetic on this one. And you can tell what versus songs the crowd is really into at this show because it's only, what, barely six months that this record's come out? And they have picked their favorites, and Animal is absolutely, no doubt, one of them. We talked about, I think, last week where Animal is like a another one that we overlook sometimes but it's always great and i can't remember uh hearing like a bad version of it and yeah 1994 animal with dave like sure yeah bust it out and again you had the big wave crash with jeremy the big sing-along and then you're going to come back with one of the new songs and just kind of throw it right back at him here yeah i thought animal was great and then you're going to get into the the upright the, section yeah the upright bass section thank you you get in the, the the pairing that you would always get here but I think Animal's really the highlight of this section. I glorify G, like, yeah, you may be making a statement playing it in the South and Tennessee, but not not too much to say about that one. Yeah, I'm I'm more interested in Daughter here, and I'm kind of yeah. I'm kind of leaning towards Daughter as being the moment out of these three. And we don't talk a lot about the actual song at all, but props to it because this one really felt like it had like an extra ounce of energy to it, like a lot of oomph behind it. You know, when they segue into the tag, it still is kind of going at that momentum and that pace. And there's something that sounded really good out of Stone's little part that's kind of in that transition over like this buzzing noise that he had that sounded really interesting. Should have asked Javier about that one. But there are two tags in this. There's one that's an improv. The best that I can make out is it's so much better not to be sane. And he really repeats it over and over again. I guess sort of what he was doing in deep. But the real story kind of comes out of the WMA tag here, which is very, very good. And long, too. I think at one point, like, the band feels like they're trying to wrap it up, and Ed just keeps going. I think at one point he's just acapella, just going by himself, and then they have to kind of, like, come back into it. It felt like he was really taking that and really wanted to make a point with it. And being in Tennessee, WMA, again, being whenever they're in the South, you know, he always wants to make that statement, whether it be subtle or not. But this one had a little bit of bite to it, for sure. Yeah, I'm not even sure if they were preparing for it because it sounded like they almost came to a full stop and then Dave kind of goes into something that sounds absolutely nothing like WMA and the jam just kind of stretches until it just sort of ends and Ed kind of ends that out singing along with the crowd. It was a very cool moment and I guess maybe a little awkwardly, but it it had an organic development of it. Oh, definitely, yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think like it's all based on Ed, what he wants to do and where he wants to go. And yeah, if the band tries to wrap it up and he's not done, he's going to keep going. Bro! 
Okay. This is an interesting three-headed monster. How about blood? Well, that works with not for you. But do those work with elderly woman? I don't know. We'll get into that. Blood was just another scorcher on the same lines of deep and go and river mirror whipping and all those. It was just another that felt like they were at full madness on. Yeah, super fast. And this is what you want to get when you go see Pearl Jam in 1994. I mean, I think at one point Ed starts like wrapping himself up with something. I'm like, oh, is he going to like jump into the pit and go crazy? He doesn't. But yeah, just again, intensity, attack. They felt like after Glorified G and Daughter, they were ready to get right back into something a little more intense. It looks like it was a ripped t-shirt and he kind of used it as a blindfold. But then the way that he had his hand over his head made it look like he was pretending to hang himself, which he's done before. He's done that at a couple shows before. So I'm not sure if that was exactly what he was going for, but that's what it looked like from my perspective. But overall, just unhinged. There's a moment where Ed is working with the, the mic stand. He's trying to smash it into the stage as hard as he can. And as we know, about a week later, he would have success with that at the Boston Garden where he would smash a huge hole into the stage and then go under and then come back out during the encore. That's probably, I wonder if we go back and actually look at all the footage from this year, how many of those he's trying that during to see if he can. I I would have to say, I would have to say. So not for you, another, you know, you're still getting the pre-Vitalogy versions and not for you. I felt like this one was kind of going through a little bit of the motions of just, all right, we've worked on it. We are working to really perfect it, but it's still not quite there in some spots. It felt like the intro, which I know in 1994 I've heard is like extremely fast and loud and distorted. This felt like it eased into it a little bit and felt a little light until, you know, somewhere in the middle, kind of like during the first chorus or something like that into the bridge. It took a little while to develop, but you knew exactly where they were going with it. For the 10th version, it's not like it's one of the first couple of times where it's going to have that tentativeness to it. I thought it was was great. Again, it gets to a really good place with the ending. I thought the ending was great. I love when they they go to the, you know, original when Ed's doing the arpeggiated thing really high up on the, the harmonics and everything. We know, like, in 1995, with Jack, it would become something else. But I thought this version was great. It had a really good ending. Got to a really good place. But again, coming after blood, you're going to be hard-pressed to maintain that energy. Now, before Not For You, Ed is kind of talking to somebody in the crowd. He hears something, and somebody is shouting out a request for him. He's like, oh, I like that request. And I want to say that this was an improv ad into the set, a throw-in to add elderly woman in here because he Mm kind of makes a nod to that as like, okay, we're going to play a request here and make it good on the prior request. So, you know, no one, two, three, four, two, three, just right into it. And I think a lot of this era too with that and elderly woman is not the 1993, 1994 type song. It's the outlier, if you want to say, because it just doesn't really capture the same energy as blood and river mirror and et cetera. That kind of had led to some performances of this song feeling a little like empty 
in spots, feeling a little stark. But for some reason, and I want to say the crowd had a lot to do with this, it felt like the crowd was participating more than other versions that I've seen in those two years. And where it would have that starkness and would have that space, they kind of filled in those gaps and celebrated the song along with the band. I think that kind of led to a little bit more of an inspired version that we've seen in the 90s, which we all know would come well into the 2000s, which would be, you know, one of their biggest spectacle type songs. But this is a little bit showing that this song can have that. Yeah, I think so. And that's interesting. It would be really, it'd be really interesting to do a evolution episode on this. And it's one that whenever we talk about evolution episodes, I think we always forget about. But it would be interesting to kind of track the early history of it and see how the crowd reacted to it. Because I, I think you're right. I, I, I picked up on that too, that I think this is the request that's added. And we don't have a, a set list scan from this to be sure. But I think that makes a lot of sense. It's definitely not the anthem that it would become, and we kind of always talk about this when you talk about early versions, that like, you know, oh, don't expect the big moment because it's not there yet. I mean, this is only the 22nd version. I mean, that we talked about that. This has been played the same amount as whipping at this show, so definitely not one that they latched onto from verses early on. I mean, you look at Rearview Mirror, close to 60, Go 61, Animal 64, Daughter 67 on, on Live Footsteps, so not playing it as, as often as some of the other ones, but it's, it's definitely caught up, and I think you're right. I think the crowd, I think, kind of took it and realized kind of the potential that it had. And it was kind of a different song for them. You know, Daughter was a big radio hit. And this kind of like fits in with that a little bit where it's a little more strummy and just a more kind of folkier kind of song. But they can definitely do that. Yeah, I think that you look at versions like this that, that made the band realize like, yeah, we can turn this into something. And so many kinds of versions, you know, early on before they kind of latched on to what it would become. But I always like it when it pops up and you know in 1994 it doesn't make a lot of sense on paper to play it after not for you but crowds into it so yeah that was good john i don't forget this i avoid this because it's north of 500 and when we get the songs north of 500 we yeah, feel no. like okay how yeah. close to the 500 do we have to hit to really yeah, tell this story you know once you once you get to the one then you just you're there but oh yeah yeah we've yeah. done it with porch and alive yeah i mean yeah. this will get done at some point so yeah y'all be happy all right we got two more to finish out the set but there's a lot going on kind of in between alive is right here and same kind of thing like with Alive just sort of being a different performance in 1994, it felt like it was starting to transition into the why the fuck do we still play it in this year in 1995 and 1996 would really kind of heighten that. But boy, this showed the same kind of energy and emotion and excitement that like a 1992 version would have in there. Ed was real bouncing bouncing off the speakers just running around the stage and jeff was doing the same thing and i felt like dave was pumping a lot of energy into the song and really kind of elevating it i'm sort of thinking like ed at the time and we've, we've talked about this with ed before like in this era it was sort of like one of those things where it kind of felt like they had to play it every night and he was just getting tired of it and he would say at one show like i don't know why the fuck we do this but for some reason, like this one is just, and you can hear that and feel that with versions of Alive in little spaces, but this one is as inspired as something from the Dentor. 
Yeah, it definitely has a little bit of that youthful innocence to it. He does the ready to fuck you, which gets uh, a little like, oh, huh, reaction. But there's some onstage shenanigans going on. They've still got a little bit of that youthful, again, swagger to it. But I think a lot of that is due to, this is still pre-Cobain suicide, like Kurt Cobain's still alive on, on March 25th. They're a different band after that in a very eventful two weeks at the beginning of April that we always talk about around this time. Like those shows, the Fairfax show, the Atlanta shows, the Boston shows, going to meet with Clinton at the White House, Saturday Night Live. Like they're a different band coming out the other end of that. And I think that started, you started to see a little bit more jadedness on Alive and some of the 10 songs. Song kind of start to fuck with Jeremy a little bit. Even Flow probably doesn't have the same energy that it did when they were younger, and they, they aged a lot in that two weeks, we'll say. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. That has a lot to do with it, too. But also, though, a lot of their mood today, again, goes back into Steve Cropper yep. and what's going to happen. Like, they're very close. They're like 10 minutes away almost from that happening. And I think that they're, they don't have to psych themselves up for that, but. I think that this is just a, boy, we got something really, really good, and we can't wait to share it with everybody, so we're just going to just let out our excitement all out here. All right, right before Porch, Ed's going to talk a little bit. This is a little interesting. So we didn't take all day to get to Murfreesboro, so it ain't over yet. If you come to Seattle, I'm in the phone book. Look me up. No big deal. Come on over. Well, I take that back. If you come to my house, I'm going to have to shoot you. I need my privacy. You need privacy, too. We all need our fucking privacy. Ever wonder why your mom and dad don't let you have a lock on your door? I still suffer from that. I need a lock on my fucking door. What the fuck is a door for if you can't have a lock on it? Tell mom and dad I say hi, then fight for your rights as kids. One, two, three, four. Fast Porch. When we say Fast Porch, like, this is adjacent to Atlanta. This is right in the wheelhouse of what Fast Porch is. Definitely. I think it, too, like, Five Horizon says that there's a McCready guitar smash at some point. I did not see it. Probably not on video. But, oh, yeah, this is 1994 Porch is the reason Fast Porch is the reason it's called Fast Porch. Yeah. And there's a lot of strobe light going on in this, so I don't I don't blame you for not seeing it. I don't think I saw it either. So, yeah, that probably had something to do with it. But you mentioned, like, Atlanta, again, sort of like Rearview Mirror, they don't get to that classic Atlanta version that can be considered one of their best live performances ever without a big-time performance like this that absolutely blows everybody away. This felt like a line of just show after show of them tearing the house down with this and you know this one is interesting too because it feels like along with those strobe lights i kind of remember there was another show where we mentioned this but it just felt demonic and it felt kind of almost like getting into a death metal song in the solo in a way and then ed during this little part like he's kind of doing the pixies he's doing monkey gone to heaven in this the if the devil was six and he keeps going on if god was seven and they just keep screaming that over and over and i'm thinking like is that conscious on his part because this feels like the band is going into that territory that they are getting into a little bit of a demonic ceremony here it fits in so well together and it kind of fits the identity of what the hell fast porch is 
Well, Mike throws a little bit of War Pigs into the beginning of his solo, too, so there's a little bit of, Same, of that he, going on with, with Sabbath there, too, yeah. And he, and he has Voodoo Child in there, too. Yeah. That's yeah. thrown in as well. Hey, like, this is a big moment that's capping off an hour and 15 minutes, a kind of set that sort of defines an era for this band. You know what I mean? Like, this is... What do we do on Deprogram? We say, you know, we want to get you the one song that's going to get you into the band. Like, this is probably not going to beat Atlanta. It might not even beat St. Pete. But if you show them this main set and say, this is Pearl Jam in 1994, this is as close as you're going to get without, like, having the big-time moments that those other shows have. Oh, yeah. I mean, 1994, it's just pillar after pillar. Like, all those shows stand on their own as being excellent in their own ways and for different reasons but yeah i mean there's not one that i've come across yet that feels lesser than any other so yeah this one might not get the credit for what it is what we're going to talk about in a minute gets all the spotlight but 1994 like yeah there's not a bad show there's a lot going on here a lot to like and a lot of really good moments the encore let's pause for station identification we want to talk about dock of the bay so i think we'll get through this pretty quickly no patrons to thank this week but maybe we can thank you next week if you feel like joining up then head on over to patreon.com slash live on four legs now really we're offering you content and we're offering you a chance to help us make content as well you know, we really love, and we're going to have a ton of them in the next couple weeks. It's about the next week, and then the next week, and the next week, and the next week. Like, they're all requested shows that we're going to go and do for longtime patrons here. So, that's one of the things that I definitely recommend for everybody that is joining up. And for that, of course, I, I recommend the Gigaleg tier because everybody kind of wants their story to be told. We love telling people stories as well and having them tell it. Hell, we don't tell anything. We just kind of play off of it and ask questions and make you guys feel like you're back there. But if that's something, if you're thinking about a show that you're like, why haven't these guys even thought about this? Then please request. And that's where the requests come through is on Patreon. So it's through the Gigaleg tier. It's $5 a month. We do have a bonus leg tier that's a dollar a month, which will get you all the content from Patreon, which is more than worth the dollar a month. I mean, it's insane. And really, the suggestion there is if you love the content to begin with, just donate on that tier and then figure out what you want to do later just so you get that content. I know 
It's a lot of stuff. I know you got to have a lot of time. I know this podcast itself is time consuming. I should know. I edit and listen to all these shows. But if that's something that you're interested in, definitely hit on over there. If you're interested in helping our website function and a couple other things, getting yourself a profile on the website, getting yourself a profile episode about your fandom, there is the $10 horizon leg tier as well. But that can all be done on patreon.com slash live on four legs or on the Patreon app to search for live on four legs or just go to live on four legs.com and there's a button that says become a patron. Now, one other thing I just want to re-mention to everybody that it's coming pretty close to April and can't wait to go over to Seattle to go experience Mopop. I'm not going the weekend of the party, but I will be there the final weekend of the exhibit. I'm very excited for it. Content aplenty. I'm going to take a lot of pictures, take a lot of video and hopefully get some interviews and stuff like that. So, you know, that'll all be done. I'll I'll probably make some YouTube videos. I'll probably do a lot of stuff for social media and stuff. And, you know, who the hell knows? Like, we're going to be there when the Rockfords are playing there. So who the hell knows who we're going to talk to? But looking forward to it. Really excited for it. And if you're in the area, come find us. We'd love to hang out with you. All right. Back to the rock. It's really going to rock in a second or two. I'm going to let Ed just go through this because I I don't think I can match his enthusiasm right here because he's living the moment. And you can tell the way that he's talking here. He's really excited to do this. And I'm just going to let him speak for himself. Hey, thanks very much, you guys. Thanks. Thanks for sticking around. Thanks for... uh, being able to make it, go up to the house, looking at tickets or whatever it was. Uh, it's all been kind of strange, you know, because we're just this band and it's all this craziness about how many people like your band and we can't figure it out anyway. But, uh, we probably would have... Hey, shh. It's storytelling time.
It's unlike a lot of other things that they've done in their cast, especially, as we mentioned, especially for the mid-90s. You know, they've done things out of their wheelhouse in the 2000s, but to do something like this, to invite a guy like that who has so much respect within the industry, who's played with some of the greats, not only that, but has this just rich guitar sound that adds just an extra element that you don't expect out of Pearl Jam. Like, how beautiful is this? Yeah, I don't know that I'd seen the video maybe ever in a long time. So I was really, you know, looking forward to seeing this. And I first kind of took notice of of Steve Cropper around the Blues Brothers movie, because like the first time I saw the Blues Brothers movie, that automatically became one of my favorite movies. I think it's still probably my favorite movie to this day. And, you know, he and the, the rest of the MGs have a big part in that. And he gets to act a little bit and do the whole thing. So I knew his his face and like his sound, but getting to see it in the context of Pearl Jam and watching, you know, how kind of reverential Ed is. Like he does the great solo. Ed holds the mic out so he can do the little whistling part. Oh, it's it's so that's good. very cool. Yeah, that that might be the moment of the moment. I think. I mean, it's just great to watch them. You get to see a different side of them. Like we we talked about how Ed will kind of like take the backseat to people he really respects, like a, like a Neil or a Cornell, or we've seen it with different people throughout the years. And you can tell there's just a lot of respect on, on stage for, from everyone for Steve Cropper. It's really, really cool. And not someone everyone at the show probably was familiar with. But after this, I'm sure they went back and looked and checked it out, hopefully. You know, Ed, of course, is just from the very beginning, it's like we're going to wear our influences on our sleeves. And not a lot of other bands do that or obviously do that. Like, they'll kind of play into the fact that it's like, okay, we're playing to a young audience. 
because bands are usually a little bit older than their audience, they're like, well, we kind of feel like we have to act cool, especially in the 90s. We want the audience to think we're cool. So you have to be relevant. You have to do something that the audience is going to react to. And I think a lot of bands, and I kind of go back to like at the Metro in 92, where Pearl Jam and Smashing Pumpkins kind of got on stage together and did a whole big thing. Like that feels like, okay, you're together with your peers. And it's different than getting together with legends. Like a lot of bands say a band is opening for another band and like, okay, and Pearl Jam's done it a thousand times, but they bring somebody from that band on stage to play with them or something like that. It just feels more of like a frat party instead of like creating a moment with a legendary figure within the industry. Uh, Of course, at this time, Uncle Neil and the association with Uncle Neil, and we all know that that's the role that Neil has taken. Very shortly after the show, we we know that they'd record Mirrorball together, you know, almost another year later, but it happened shortly after this. Pearl Jam was the only young band that was playing at the Bob Dylan Tribute Show, which you mentioned before. And think about, like, other bands would want to go on tour with what else is popular because hopefully that is attracting that young fan base to to come if they're like oh well smashing pumpkins are playing with the screaming trees or something like that or soundgarden is playing with alice in chains that would probably bring in that audience but pearl jam is doing something different and kind of throughout a little bit did it differently because you think about the bands and the people that are relevant in their history you know sonic youth opened up for them iggy pop the buzzcocks cheap trick these are heroes these are influences last week we talked about it with sonic youth where ed firmly said we are not here if not for this band we don't play for you if not for this band influencing us so for this band it's more important for them to play with their predecessors than it is to kind of mingle with Stone Temple Pilots or something like that. Yeah, they were very deliberate about who they spent time with and who they were seen with and influenced by. Yeah, that's because they knew what that can lead to and how that can influence you as a band. It was all very calculated is probably not the right word because that, you know, insinuates some kind of like corporate influence or whatever. But yeah, yeah, it it was it was all done very deliberately. And they knew they wanted to be in this for the long haul because like, you know, everybody knows the story. Mother Love Bone didn't last. Green River didn't last. So Jeff and Stone wanted to make this the one that would last and surrounded themselves with people that would do that and people who were in it for the right reasons. And as a band, they did that and, you know, surrounded themselves with those people. But Steve's not done. He's, he's going to stick around. Oh, yeah. This is another song that he's pretty familiar with, torn with Neil for all that time. You're getting the rocking in the free world here, of course. And because Cropper's on stage, kind of like when they performed at the VMAs, they're going to the original Neil stomp on this. Like, it's the original style. It's not kind of going full rock and roll like Pearl Jam would do. It's got a little bit more pace to it. It's got kind of a little bit of a bounce. And it fits perfectly with Cropper. But what's interesting here is that, like, this is a guitar sound that we don't hear from Pearl Jam, obviously, because this is a very, like... I wouldn't say dated, but it's very much a 60s, even 50s thing. Like, it kind of, to me, 
in spots sounded like that rockabilly, that clean rockabilly guitar sound. Oh yeah, I mean he he invented this style. Like he's gonna, right. he's going to do his style. Right. So I'm going to toss it to Javier real quick to talk about that sound and to talk about how it worked within the Pearl Jam universe because you had it, of course, in both of these songs, but Rocking in the Free World and the solo that's going to happen here, everything just clicks into place and just meshed in with the already established band and you know the, the legend kind of fitting in there. Like Everything sounds really, really good. So here's what the gear guru had to say. This was this required a lot of research. So Steve Cropper is very well known for the Telecaster sound. His main axe, it was a 1956 Fender Telecaster blonde with a classical guard that those guitars have. But for this show, Randy, John and I, we were like, what is that guitar? What is that sound? And the headstock to me didn't make any sense because it was not the headstock that you will see in a regular Fender Telecaster. So my go-to was like, okay, it's a Birdland guitar because also Steve Cropper was known to use Birdland guitars and I think he has his own signature model with them. But no, this is a rare, 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 rare thing. He's actually using a PV Generation Series guitar that later on it was renamed as a Steve Cropper PV Telecaster Signature Series. And in the way that it's stripped down, maybe he was using the early prototype that they were going to use for the model because it doesn't look like the final version. The final version is more like orangey and it looks more like polished or anything. But I thought that it was a pretty interesting fact to name for the show this week since it's a very rare fact that he's using that kind of guitar that later on it was going to be well known as his signature model for the brand PV. Tone-wise, very similar to what a Fender Telecaster can do. And especially because maybe someone named Eddie Vedder got a lot of inspiration out of that tone since Steve Cropper also uses his Telecaster right in the middle position using both pickups at the same time. Well, excellent stuff, sir. Thank you for doing that, of course. And yeah, I mean, it's a big experience for them. Like how many times do they all huddle around Steve and just watch him? They're just yeah. there staring yeah. at him. Yeah. And Ed is encouraging him to sing the lyrics like he has the kind of like what he did with, with with the whistling. He has the mic up to his face like, hey, let's 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 sing this together. And they're really getting him involved and really making him a part of this moment. Not just like here, you're performing for yeah. us and you're doing like they all feel like they're a family at that moment. And yeah, that, that's a good point, too, because he's not a front man. He's not the lead guitarist. Like, he's not going to be the one to step up to the front of stage and, like, rip off this solo and be like, look at me, everyone. Like, ah, oh, like, some people will. Like, 
talk about when the Bono is the first one that comes to mind. And when Bono comes out and sings with Pearl Jam, it's the Bono show. Yep, but, right. but Steve Steve Cropper is not that. Like he's a rhythm guitar player. He's perfectly happy to stand in the back, not take the spotlight. But they go out of their way to like make sure he has these moments and make sure everyone sees that. Yes, like here's someone who you should be paying attention to. It's it's very very well done by the band. So, what do you think about this? Is this a continuation of Encore One or is this Encore Two? I knew this was going to come up. Um, <laughs> I think yeah, it's Encore Two. They, you can definitely tell that like they, they set their shit down when they come back out for indifference. They, it definitely feels like they're walking back out on stage. Yeah, I think we can call this an encore too. All right. Yeah, I'm on board with that. We'll have to make the change in the footsteps. Ed is just elated here. Just like imagine you play with one of your heroes. And I think you have to walk back there and just, of course, like give him a hug and, and shake his hand and thank him. To the high heavens, like yeah, one, of, one of the great names in rock and roll history. Like rock and roll would not exist without Steve Cropper in the way that it exists. Right. And he plays with another great name too, Donald Duck Dunn. That's right. Also in the mm-hmm. Blues Brothers movie. Yep. That's right. So yeah, I mean, like they have to be on cloud nine. This has to be the highlight of their lives. And that's what he says. He just witnessed one of the highlights of our lives playing with Steve Cropper. And we're going to get into indifference to close this one out. And it kind of ends how it started with all the lights off stark version with very subtle tambourine hits and cymbal flourishes as it goes on. I love when they do that. And the crowd is all in on it. They're singing. You can hear them pretty clearly. And Ed, at some points, it feels like they kind of lay out for him and they kind of like just give him the spotlight and let him go. And it just feels like, because you can't really see them on stage, it feels like he's just singing into darkness. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a really cool moment. I thought this was a really nice version. Like I said, it felt like they were still riding high on Cloud9 from, from what had just happened. And I think Indifference is a good call because you don't want to come out and, like, overshadow. Like, they're not going to be a band to come out and be, like, you don't want to step on the toes of what just happened. Just come out and, like, play Indifference have it be kind of chilled out and then be done like it's yeah right. this is very well done as well and they needed one more as like their own because they they played a full show here 90 minutes they played a full show as their own like thank you and goodbye to the yeah. crowd or else if they don't come out then it's just like they gave all the spotlight to him which deservedly so but i think the crowd wanted that last connection with the band so it's, it's smart in that aspect all right, let's go and do our three stars for this show. There's a lot of good options. What are you going with here? Yeah, I'm going to go Daughter number three, Rearview Mirror number two, and Dock of the Bay number one. Yeah, I got a different two and three. I'm going to go number three, Deep. I'm going to go number two, Go. And I'm going to go Glorified G number one, easily. <laughs> Dock of the Bay, in parenthesis, sitting on. Okay, let's rate this one. This is a, it's a good show. I wish it was a little longer, you know, for 1994. Yeah. wish there was a little more Vitalogy. But again, the Dock of the Bay moment, the Steve Cropper moment, Rockin' the Free World, that elevates it well above, you know, what it would be without that. So I'm going to give this one a nine. I love this show. I won't lie. I really, really like this. And... You know, from everything in 94, you know, my ranking could be different from people, but this kind of elevated this into at least the top five 
of this year and maybe even the top three. That's how good this show was, and that's how much this made me feel like this is from this era. There's, trust me, there's a ton of amazing shows from this. You got The Orpheum, you got Atlanta, you got St. Pete, like you got Pensacola, you got a lot of really, really good shows. And I think that this is up there as one of them. I don't think that this is a show that just has one moment. I'm not going to dock points for like this not being a two-hour show or anything like that. But I'm going to throw this as a nine and a half. I'm going to do that. It's real close to a ten, though. Mm. Ask me why it's not a ten. The last four weeks, you've given nine and a half. So we're going to get that ten out of you at some point. Maybe. Maybe. What are we doing next week? Maybe. We're doing 2010 next week, right? Bristow. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll see. I I don't think I've ever listened to that show before. So we'll see. 2010 is a little tougher, but good mix of you know, different errors in there. We'll see what happens. But yeah, okay. Bristow, Virginia next week. That should be a lot of fun. All right. Well, that was a fun show. Thanks, everybody, well, we, for tuning into that. Oh, we have to mention, too, he says, see you next year at the end. Come on. Come on. Have they, have they ever been back to Murfreesboro? No. Manchester's just down the road for Bonnaroo, but it would take a while to get there. How close is Nashville? Oh, not, it's not, not far at all. Not far oh, it's at not all. far. No. So they would play Nashville when? 2000, 2003? One of those? One, probably both probably, those, right? Didn't they play Nashville 98? Maybe. I mean, they kind of played all similar places yeah. in 98, 2000, 2003. It's kind of yeah. hard yeah. to follow up on that. But yeah. one of those, yeah. And then obviously last year. So I'm sure there were a lot of crossover. And, and honestly, from our social media reaction, we, we had a lot of people say that this was their first show. And I told mm-hmm. them, hey, you got to listen to this. If it's your first show. Like It's a lot of memories, I'm sure, coming back at you. I think somebody actually asked, like, I don't even know if there's bootleg for this. Well, we have it, and we have all the other 1,200 bootlegs, too. So, But, yeah, great show. Glad we did that for you. Glad we hyped up the big moment and did that justice. And if you like what you heard, please help out the podcast. We are on all the podcast platforms that you can think about, including our own website, which is really through SoundCloud. But... The big ones are obviously Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and you can go on either of those and give this show a rating. If you felt like we did a good job today, then head on over. Please feel free. Give us a five-star rating if we deserved it. I think we did a good episode today, so I think we deserved it for sure. But that's all up to you. If you think we deserved it, head on over. Give us a five stars. On Apple Podcasts, you can comment and leave us a comment and Again, it's not for us. I say this every week. It's not for us. It's for the next person that is looking for Pearl Jam podcast to listen to. That person is going to look at these comments. They're going to be like, oh, well, they've done this show. Randy and John are knowledgeable about the history of Pearl Jam. Little things like that. That will help people decide whether or not they want to listen to it. And then it grows word of mouth. Like that's a little part of the word of mouth, but when there's tours going on, you know, and people are talking about their old past shows, maybe just maybe somebody points out that we had covered something in the past and that other person's like, oh, I got to check that out. So it all interconnects, it all works, and it all starts with you guys. That kind of gets the gears in motion over there. The goal for the year is 100 ratings on Apple. I think we're at 71 or something right now. So let's kick that into gear. 
And I think we can only see American ratings, I'm pretty sure. So I guess we'll just kind of have to keep it from that. But yeah, rate it and share a comment. And we will be really, really thankful that you did. And just hit us up when you do. And we will send you a little thank you gift. That's all I got for this one. We'll be back for Bristow, Virginia, 2010 next week at Jiffy Lube. Yeah, we're going to play at Jiffy Lube. All right. This may be the end. We're here, but not for much longer. And although we may be parting ways, miss you already, miss you always. John, share a Blues Brother quote to end this on. Bring me four fried chickens and a Coke.